RA Exchange. Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. Today's episode features a house music legend, Ron Trent. Trent grew up in Chicago, where he dreamed of being a musician from a young age. He started producing in high school, becoming one of the architects of the Chicago house sound and working alongside contemporaries like Shea Damier and Across the Pond, Basic Channel. His label, Prescription Records, became a renowned purveyor of the deep house sound. This live talk, part of our flagship Playing Favorite series, was recorded live at Miami Art Week, where Trent co-curated an exhibit called Walk the Night alongside gallerists Tyler Gibney and Rob McKay. The exhibition is named after a song Frankie Knuckles used to play, and it's a documentation of the different dance floors across history that have acted as important safe spaces. In Trent's words, it's an homage to the pioneers that helped shape nightlife culture, especially in 1970s New York. The project features photos of legendary night spots, Studio 54, Paradise Garage, and The Warehouse, which showed alongside sets from Trent, Muscle Cars, and more. He plans to take the entire thing on tour across Germany, Italy, the UK, and beyond. In his conversation with RA staff writer Kiana Mickles, Trent talks about this period of New York. He lived there throughout the 90s, claiming that it helped mature his taste and allowed him and other musicians a kind of artistic freedom that's now difficult to find. In between reflections, he puts on some of the jazz, funk, and disco songs from Larry LeVon and more that have shaped him into the musician and DJ he is today. And, you know, and some of these records that I play now mean more now. You know, as you get older, your palate matures in terms of styles of music, even food. This is a record that, you know, I heard, and it's like, yeah, yeah, great song, but, you know, didn't really have a a full-bodied context of how I could present it or any of that kind of stuff. So I don't know if I'm going to say it grew on me. It made sense at one point in time. And some records are like that. This is an excellent look inside the minds of one of house music's greatest legends, so stay tuned. Without further ado, here's Ron Trent. How you guys doing? You guys okay? You awake? What's up? If I'm awake, you're awake. You gotta be awake. <laughs> Shit, I've been running all day. Come on. Come on. <laughs> all right. So actually before we play any records, why don't we start with Walk the Night? I think it's a good place to start because a lot of the images that are being displayed are scenes from dance music institutions that have been very inspirational to you throughout your career. So can you tell us a little bit about the idea behind Walk the Night? Walk the Night is really just the name I came up with that was kind of centered around a tune by the Stryker Brothers, a jam that Frankie Knuckles used to play. And uh, but if it was definitely befitting of the you know the content of the the night gallery that we put together, and it's it's mainly you know a story of through photography of these different places that existed, uh, where dance floors were the refuge, places where people could go exist and create their own orbit, you know, safe places. And 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 nowadays, really honestly, we need safe places. There's a need for unity. There's a need for diversity. 
especially what was going on in the world. So I thought it was important to, at this time, kind of, you know, have us uh, take a look back so we can look forward. I had done some curatorial stuff in terms of photography and art before with Bill Bernstein. Bill Bernstein being an accomplished photographer, shot everything, everybody from Paul McCartney to, I mean, you name it, to be honest with you. But he had the opportunity back in the 70s uh, to go in places where you couldn't take pictures and, you know, have his camera out. And he captured a lot, a lot of great stuff. And then you have Mr. Robert Williams, who's actually here on my shirt, who is actually the owner of the warehouse, which is where the word house music comes from, if people don't know that. It's a shortened term for uh, the warehouse, which is where Frankie Knuckles used to play. Mr. Williams canvassed Frankie from New York, because Mr. Williams is from New York as well. Actually, Mr. Williams moved to Chicago. I don't know. I, I think actually he has some family members there, but he also got asked to do some some things in Chicago. He um, wound up actually, you know, opening the warehouse. He had a couple of different iterations of it. Anyway, when he finally got the, the warehouse together, um, he had originally wanted uh, Larry LeVan to come and play and be the DJ, but Larry was working on the Paradise Garage. Well, funny story, Mr. Williams actually used to be Larry LeVan and Frankie Knuckles' truancy officer. So it's random, but it's, it's true. That all got stopped when... Um, they found out that Mr. Williams was going to the, the gay clubs that they were going to. <laughs> so their relationship changed immediately. But um, anyway, they all came up together and uh, Mr. Williams canvassed uh, Frankie to come to Chicago and play. And the rest is history. You know, so we have uh, photography from Frankie and pictures of Frankie and pictures of the dance floor. So we have that and then we have Mrs. Tina Paul. Tina Paul actually lives here. She's been living here for a very long time. But uh, Tina, you know, did a lot of intimate photos of Larry LeVan and the Paradise Garage all the way up into the Sound Factory, which was a big club uh, in New York City. So, I mean, it was like some of everybody. So the, the statement images we have that we've been using is a picture of Grace Jones and Larry LeVan, you know, getting ready to light up. And that's a Tina Paul pic. So a lot of these photos have actually been used in, <laughs> in uh, documentaries and, and all kinds of stuff over the years. And so we just kind of compiled them. Today is like a small, you know, like light showing of some of the photos and people can actually buy these photos. I mean, I've been coming to Art Basel for a while and it's like you, you, you come and you look at the art, but it seems kind of unattainable. You kind of, you know, like, oh, OK, you know, but it's like you can actually buy this stuff. You can buy merch and you can engage with it. And this is the beginning of us actually taking it on the road. And when we take it on the road, it's going to actually be more of an immersive situation. Where, you know, it's going to be more kind of like, you know, you'll be in the environment along with the photos. Mm-hmm. Bill Bernstein did a, a great exhibit in New York uh, at the Museum of Sex. And it was only supposed to be there for two months. I wound up being there for two years. Wow. But it was great because he, it's like he transformed the room into a club. He had a big stack of speakers in there. They used to have parties. People hang out. So we're going to kind of do that kind of thing, you know, take it uh, internationally. But uh, right. that's a little bit about, bit about it. Otherwise, I would say, you know, read some of the articles and maybe come hang out with us. Come check it out. Yeah. It's smart. Interesting that you mentioned that it's traveling because my next question was going to be a lot of these places that you're mentioning, they're in, you know, Chicago, mm-hmm. New York, um, Detroit, I'm, I'm guessing. So I'm wondering if, you know, why did you think it was important to start in Miami? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, Basel and, and you know, you have a large contingency of people, you know, here and engaging with stuff. And, you know, 
Oh, I forgot to mention, I met my little brother uh, that passed away, of course, is, you know, very famous as uh, Virgil Abloh. But Virgil is, uh, you know, my intern for uh, some time. But I'm very proud of what he did. And uh, so we have these pieces that in the exhibit, which actually these pieces look like speakers to me, like these like modular pieces it's called modular imagination. And uh, they're for sale, too. So where, where will it be traveling after Miami? Well, we have some interest already to bring it to Italy and definitely London and definitely Berlin mm. so far. It's going to be a kind of an add and delete process. You know, we're going to add, take some stuff out, put some stuff in, add some more artists, et cetera, depending kind of like, you know, what the, the installation is going to be or where it's going to be, more or less, you know. So I want to kind of keep it interesting. You know, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of photographers, there's a lot of other interesting pieces that can be, you know, modularly added to what we're doing and, and the message that we're sending. So since you have a panel to go to, I think we should get into the music. Let's go, yeah, let's, let's go please. <laughs> so uh, the first track you selected was from your own, your own album, your most recent album, What Do the Stars Say to You? Yes, yes. The track is titled Flow's Potentia. Yes, yes, yes. So it's actually, the, the course I put out this album that uh, was myself uh, mainly playing all the instruments. It was a little divergent from what I normally do because it was more of a down-tempo, kind of balearic kind of album, jazzy album. One of the collaborations that I'd done in the album was with uh, Karungban. And uh, I had done a remix for them and they were fans of my radio show that I had on Worldwide FM. And so, you know, got the opportunity to work together. And, you know, this is kind of like what came out of it. I, I created the template for them and they came in and they um, rocked it out. Them along with a few of the uh, other artists on the album, Gigi Messine, Great Asmuth, well, you know, Ivan Conti and, and, and who just passed away, uh, Alexis Moreros, two surviving members of Azimuth at the time. They're on the album, John Luke Ponte. Can you maybe talk about the meaning of the song? So, <laughs> I like things that work in duality. They have dual meaning. So it was, you know, it's really flow potential. It was, you know, flower power, right? So it was kind of like a, a look back to, you know, time of, you know, the psychedelic movement and this kind of thing. But also talking about the crops that, helped to build this nation, cotton, sugar, tobacco, you know, crops and off the backs of, you know, slavery and tyranny and everything else. But uh, that's mainly what this, the song is about, primarily. And, um, you know, it's, it's about revolution right. in a sense. So, you guys ready? <laughs> you awake? Hey, you awake? Okay, all right. All
I wish we could display the album art for you because it's really cool. But I know that you mentioned that the album art for What Do the Stars Say to You was kind of inspired by just the way you listen to music um, and, you know, just like laying back and experiencing well, yeah, I, the music. Yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays, audiophile culture is really big. It's coming back. I mean, you know, it obviously was a big thing back in the, the 60s and 70s because it kind of represented, you know, high life and sophistication, people collecting records and stereo equipment and that kind of thing, you know. This album is more about, about uh, atmospheres and environments and moments and beautiful scenery to go along with mm -hmm. the music, you know, whether it be in your car, whether it be, you know, looking out, which is kind of like the, the motif of the, the album cover yeah. where you're looking out over the city, you know. I mean, one of my ex-girlfriends used to call it condo music. Mm, I, it's very it's very classy music. It yeah, like kind of transports you it's into like a, like a life, sexy environment. You know, this yeah. kind of thing, right? <laughs> so it's 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 more or less for that. It's for moments and moods, you know. And obviously when I created the album, we were doing it was during pandemic. I actually it started it two years before. Uh, it had been on my mind to do for a while, but pandemic really made me, you know, actually have to sit down and pick up the fucking guitar, which I had been looking at. Uh, they were in my studio. I had bought them and I just kept looking at them. <laughs> I actually got the chance to sit down and do it. You know, I, I got good enough so that I could actually, you know, lay down chords and do some other things. Grew up playing percussion and keys, which has primarily been my thing. But uh, the guitar kind of opened me up to be able to do some other things, you know, because there's a lot of things that open. When you're playing guitar, I don't, something about the, the voicings opens up music mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But for me, it opened up another whole channel, another whole portal. So I was able to kind of, you know, put this album together and, and this is what I was feeling. It was also, also uh, therapeutic, kind of like what music is supposed to do, it's supposed to heal you. You know? Right. Yeah. And you'd been thinking about making an album like this since 1992, right? Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of an interesting guy like that. I, <laughs> I come up with these ideas and I kind of sit on them. You know, sometimes it's not, you know, the world is not radio. I'm not ready to manifest. But it was a vision I had for a while. A couple of years after Alter States, believe it or not. I mean, because I, I actually created Alter States in the 80s, but it came out in 1990, officially. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, should we go to the next track? Yeah, what is the next track? So the next track is by George Duke, mm -hmm. Brazilian Love Affair. Mm -hmm. Within the Walk the Night theme and talking about, you know, uh, uh, the original audio file, which was David Mancuso. Clip speakers were his, you know, his, his choice of speaker. And uh, he was very informed on sound and that kind of thing. And he was very into creating his own, you know, world and democracy inside the loft. David was a friend of mine, you know, he was one of my elders I would talk to from time to time. But this was, a, uh, in particular, it's a Loft classic. And um, this jam, which is by George Duke. You guys know who George Duke is? One of my favorite talents of all time. This is a record I like to play when I know it's a good party. <laughs> I can kind of end this party. I did it with my boiler room set, as a matter of fact. Okay. You know, uh, it's like this... Brings it all in. You Is know? it like, um, I believe there's an interview where Jeff Mills talks about playing the bells. And he says, I play the bells when I'm on. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is that, is that when it, when it's, yeah, when, when, when it's When everything is together and it's ripe and, and the dance floor is, you know, everybody's synergized. 
and you play certain records, it, it, it's like the glue mm. to the end of the night, mm-hmm. or it just brings everything together and brings that spirit right where it needs to be. And this is one of those tunes for me. I mean, but this was also a Dave McCrusel classic. Yeah, let's play it. the first time you heard this song when i was younger in the 70s <laughs> so 70 80s no because this came out around like around 81 82 and you know and some of these records that i play now mean more now you know as you get older your palate matures in terms of styles of music even food this is a record that you know i heard you know it's like yeah, yeah great song but you know didn't really understand, have to, a, a full body context of how I could 
presented or any of that kind of stuff. So I don't know if I'm going to say it grew on me. It made sense at one point in time. Mm-hmm. And some records are like that. Yeah. When, when do you feel like it like kind of when that shifts? <laughs> Probably when I moved to New York mm. back in the mid-90s. You're just hearing it out more. No, more or less that by the time I moved to New York, I had kind of surpassed a certain part of my life and uh, where I had grew up in Chicago playing and being around a certain type of musical presentation. When I went to New York, it was different. And my maturity level in terms of how I was listening to music, the stuff I was collecting and everything else started to have more of a body to it. Mm. And it made more sense. And I, I can't really explain it. It just is something that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you become attracted to certain things over a period of time. And the environment also lends itself to that as well. Yeah. And you were in New York for a while, Ten, about right? ten years. Yeah, yeah. So Officially, that's, yeah. that's a lot of time for, you know. In the good times, before 9-11, actually. <laughs> before 9-11 and then post 9-11, which right. was a different, different world, right. you know. You know, I don't know if you guys got a chance to go to New York in the 90s or even the 80s, but it was, wow, it was was a good time. A lot of artistic freedom, interesting places, and uh, it was affordable, (laughs) which now is got to be a cool millionaire to fucking buy anything in New York City. (laughs) Even a hot dog. No, it's getting Yeah, so when you were in New York, maybe you can talk a little bit about how your music taste changed, like, you know, how DJing or, like, producing, you moved, like, around the time when The Loft was taking place or, you know, you're friends with all these people. Yeah, The Loft had kind of, like, moved into a a different gear by that time, you know, Mm -hmm. because David had almost kind of, like, stopped doing The Loft and he wasn't really doing it like that. And, you know, you got things like Body and Soul going on. You had the shelter, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Later, my party at Giant Step. And, uh, you know, primarily it was just really, you know, you had, because people don't understand it's like, what we call house music culture today is it's made up of so many other different types of music. It's not this formulaic thing of four and four beats and this, that, and the other. It really comes from a whole conglomerate of, different types of music, jazz, gospel, rock, kraut rock, all these different types of things. And it's really, it was played through uh, the medium of whoever was presenting the records. David had his own thing. You know, David didn't really mix. He selected. Then you have Nicky Siano that came along and you have Larry LeVan, you have Frankie Knuckles, you have T. Scott, you have all these different people that are doing different things and different flavors that they were presenting. But they're musical taste and their way of presenting music was so it was a high level because really what they were doing and what it was about and what the, what the, the whole style is really about is about telling stories mm-hmm. using music to tell stories even talking sentences and this kind of thing and then that was the whole part of it and the theatrics of presenting music and it not being about focused on the dj but about focused on the music i just talked about this yesterday with the clips conversation that we were having about how you know david had these different philosophies about things and one of the things he said he said one of the worst things you could do is actually have your party and your dj booth focused everybody focused on the dj he said because eventually everybody's going to be dancing with each other's backs that's exactly what the fuck is going on nowadays people should be dancing together and focused on the sound system 
you know, philosophy is just like that. You know what I mean? Just like, yeah, yeah, that's right. You're coming to dance. You know, and me, for instance, standing up here, first of all, if you see people touching the mixer too much, just they ain't doing shit. Just so you're clear. I'm telling you right now, I've been in this business a long time. If you see motherfuckers doing this all the fucking five seconds, they ain't touching nothing. There ain't nothing going on. It's just, it's become a show. You know what I mean? And some people are not even doing anything. Sometimes it's a pre-recorded set. You know what I mean? This got busted out. I think Danger Mouse said something about this recently. He was like, yeah, was, shit. Yeah, I'm getting paid. You know, it's got to go along with the lights. You know what I'm saying? It's all organized. I mean, what you, what you want? You know what I mean? You can't blame them. That's what, I guess. Right? Not my thing. When I got involved, it was the, the part of the, the art was being able to, the skill set to be able to mix the records together or to do those things. That was the art. Now it's more about the show, I guess. And so, you know, a lot of those ethos and different things and older people that I met, you know, were greatly related to the original root of what I had come into in Chicago because the style kind of originated in New York. Now, when it came to Chicago, it took on its own thing because of the people. Right. And my generation, we created what you call house music today. You know what I mean? Why? Because we heard what Frankie and Ronnie, Ron Hardy, who was also, you know, uh, one of our elders who passed on, was playing, you know, playing within that style. Mm -hmm. Right. We heard what they were doing. And then we went and tried to emulate that with drum machines and keyboards and stuff like that and created, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody like recreated some of these songs that we that we couldn't get our hands on. That was part of it, too. Some of these records that Frankie and Ronnie were playing were so fucking rare. You, you, you know what I'm saying? You couldn't get a hold of it. So we went home and be like, do, 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 and trying to make a version of it. And, and this is what created the house music scene. Right. So we actually created the soundtrack. Yeah, because you know? um, you've spoken about this before. You know, at the warehouse, they were playing all kinds of music, like even music that we wouldn't consider house yeah, that, yeah so and, uh, i feel yeah, like your generation yeah. like refined yeah or like streamlined <laughs> created right. created a, yes. a, a analog machine driven template yeah of what they were doing you know sure. and you know for instance i mean obviously with my age and you know you have some people i mean house music is so powerful in chicago you have people that lie and talk about places they've been they've never been there before you know and you know they'd be like I went to the warehouse. You ask them how old they are. You're like, oh, I'm 40-something years old. And you're like, okay, so you were two years old <laughs> when you went to the warehouse? You know, I mean, it's like that. It's, it's, it's a form of, you know, trying to say I'm, I'm sophisticated, whatever the case may be. You know, obviously in this time, in this era in which like Mr. Williams and they were doing their thing, I mean, it was my, my father and, and maybe a generation under him's time. I, by default, started playing records as a hobby in 1982, as a kid, you know, and my father was also a record pool director as well. I was around it. Doing my research, this is the first time I heard about a record pool. So can you explain to um, everyone what a record pool is? So back, back in the day, actually, the first record pool was developed at uh, The Loft from David. And what it is, is that, you know, you have a, a crew of people that are people that appreciate music, if you will. Uh, well, at that time, it was people that appreciate music, but it was also DJs. Out of that, they created relationships with the record companies to send them music, you know, different records that were coming out. And in this pool of people, 
you would then feature and talk about and report about these records that you received from the record companies and send that feedback to the companies. And they would send promo copies, which is what, if you collect records nowadays, you see promo copies of records, but that's what it was about. It was like, you know, the promo copies would go to the DJs, the DJs would report back to the record companies, and then they would make more jams, you know. And uh, my father actually ran one of the, there was only two in Chicago. One was called Dogs of War, and the other one was uh, called Naja. My father was vice president of Naja in Chicago. And so when I grew up, I grew up around, you know, music, because I my father was a uh, college was a percussionist, and so I grew up. I wanted to be a musician since I was a kid. I mean, back in the seventies, and you didn't want to be no damn DJ. That was not it wasn't a thing. And then you're like, you're a DJ. What the fuck? Are you gonna play in a lounge? Are you playing on a radio? You know, like that was not a glorified job. You know, and a glorified job would be somebody that's a rock and roll star or something like that. You know, so everybody, every kid wants to be that. You know, so I wanted to do that. But um, when I got involved in the culture, it was just something that I felt an affinity for because I, you know, understood rhythm because I grew up playing percussion, that kind of thing. And also, I, I was deeply into music. I mean, you know. Yeah, so I mean, that's what, that's what the, the record pools were mainly about. They were like basically reporting stations with DJs. Sounds really cool. Shall we move on to the next track? What we got? Johnny Hammond. Los Coquistadores. <laughs> Los Chocolates. Yes. Yes, ma'am. And so this record in particular is, so these, these records are about, you know, obviously records that I love and appreciate that I play and that kind of thing, but they have, they're uh, relevant to what I'm doing with Walking Night. So this in, song in particular, which I have featured a lot, actually, is reminiscent of the music box and Ron Hardy. Gives you a little bit of, you know, you can hear in the record, which this was also a loft record. It was played at the garage, all that kind of stuff. But Ron Hardy, this was, you know, the complexities in the record, the the abstractness in the record, the way that it is, you know, by the way, people talk about Deep House. This is what we call Deep House. And the reason why we call it Deep House is because it was obscure music. That's why we called it Deep. It was obscure and Deep House has taken on its own thing over the years as being like, oh, you know, Larry Hurd and Ron Trent and da-da-da, because we do, like, moody chords and things of that nature, jazz-oriented stuff. But uh, truth be told, it's a term that we coined in, in, in the shy, as we say, for describing music that Ron Harding and Frankie Knuckles were playing. When, when did the shift happen between it meaning obscure and... It meaning, you know, these like, you know, you know, moody chords. It's one of these things where it just kind of evolved that way when people were, you know, because we created this, these templates or whatever of house music and tracks and this kind of thing. And by the time that they got overseas, let's be real. I mean, the European market is like a big marketing, especially in particular the UK, marketing central. They wanted to find a way to. Uh, I guess start, they create categories so they can sell music, of right. course, but they coined it differently, but they weren't, you know, of the understanding of the roots. Mm. So, I as mean, it so often goes yeah. with dance music. I mean, all day. I mean, yeah. and, it, when we, and the thing is, is that you, you come up with these things that are coined right on the streets of Chicago or New York, where we come from, and then they go somewhere else, and then you wind up competing with the very thing you've created. This is weird as shit. But, you know, mm. <laughs> such is life, mm. you know, keep it moving. 
you know, he doesn't make Deep House anymore. <laughs> you don't even fucking know what Deep House is. Mm. But okay, that's what you. That's how you feel about it. All right. <laughs> There's a couple of different versions of this. I'm trying to find a straightforward version. I have okay. um, one that Dimitri from Paris did, and you know, this was a highly sought after record. So I'm trying to find the straightforward version for you guys. And when didn't you first hear this track? Oh my God! Somewhere in the '80s. Mm-hmm. This record, you know, it's, it's, it's produced by the Mizell Brothers, by the way. You guys familiar with Mizell Brothers? Donald Berg, uh, Bobby Humphreys. Uh, they even produced stuff for Motown, Jackson mm-hmm. Five, as a matter of fact. But they have a very specific sound. They produced Johnny Hammond, who's a organist, and you can hear it in this production. Hold on a second here. Niño. Vente conmigo, escúchame, te cuento una cosa, de unos hombres, ay, estos hombres, eran hombres bravos, llegaban de África, con la fuerza y la belleza, ay, dijo, conquistaban la ignorancia y la bestia en la humanidad, daban al mundo la luz y el fe, También el dios cósmico. Los llamamos los conquistadores chocolates. Thank you. 
Um, so, I mean, I, I think we have time for maybe two more. Sure. That, yeah, sound yeah. good for you? Perfect. What we got? <laughs> Wind, Brass, and Steel. Okay. Funkanova. Let's see if we got, if I can pull that up. Yep, we got it right here. Once again, another song that became popular. You know, there's a few edits and revisions, reversions that were done of this, this, this tune. But it, in particular, was a, once again, a Ron Hardy classic. We know Ron, Ron Hardy for playing this record, playing the hell out of this record. You know, if you if you guys are into rare grooves and 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 jazz funk and that kind of thing, it's it's uh, right in pocket. Yeah, check it out. mentioned um, yeah. Ron Hardy would play this a yeah. lot. Yeah. Uh, so did he introduce you to this record? or Because I know he was known for kind of like breaking records. Yeah, this this day. was definitely, if you if you thought about the music box or you were hearing anything, a lot, you know, a lot of the uh, culture of club lore in Chicago uh, carries with it the, uh, the tape culture. So basically, you know, say Ron Hardy would record a tape or Frankie Knuckles would record a tape in the booth, we'd give it to a friend and that tape would be 
then duplicated over and over and over again. And those people that couldn't get into the club wanted to get into the club because they heard this, these tapes and this weird music is being played. You know, nobody was playing anything like this. on It was no, not on the radio. It wasn't, you know, it was just like a obscure jazz funk record. And, you know, when this came out, it was kind of almost a little bit out, like out of space, you know, in the era in which we were listening to even, you know, house tracks because it was so obscure and just, you know, and then we couldn't figure it out and couldn't find it. It, it, it created its own thing, you know. Right. What we got next? <laughs> Francois K. I believe it's his mix of Obsession. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know who Francois is? Okay. I call him Papa Swah. He's a, he's a fucking uh, mad magician. He's... he's uh, he was always thinking outside the box back in the day. A lot of stuff that Larry LeVan was playing or even T. Scott or, you know, even a lot of records we grew up on, Francois did the mix on it, meaning he mixed it down. He did the EQing and he did his own versions of things, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. He's actually a national treasure as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, you know, knew a lot about equipment and still does. Uh, he's always in the innovation, but... Of the sound of the garage was, you know, like almost like hyperspace disco and tripped out kind of stuff. And this was the sound that was coming out from him and, you know, Larry the Van Productions and even T. Scott edits. T. Scott was also a very powerful DJ in New York City. Actually mentored Frankie Knuckles. Frankie Knuckles used to play at the uh, Better Days where T. Scott had his residency. So a lot of the funky R&B, you know, jams coming out at the time, T. Scott was a uh, doing the edits on or remixing at the time. You know, he's one of the first black African-American remixers, to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, anyway, then you have Francois K, who was doing, you know, just various types of stuff and, it, and was definitely linked in with uh, Island Records. And Island Records played a big role, actually, in Sound of the Garage. Counterpoint Studios in the West Indies, which is where a lot of, you know, big records like, uh, let's say, Padlock and... Gwen Guthrie and a lot of big records that, you know, with big garage records. They had a team that's very interesting because the same team also, it's a reggae team. You know, they played with on Bob Marley stuff and this kind of thing. You know, so that's Sly and Robbie. And, you know, he had Wally, Wally Badaro. And it was kind of like this production team was also making dance music and making, you know, doing reggae and all different types of stuff. Francois used to, you know, record out of the studio as well and did a lot of very interesting dubbed out type of records anyway this is a record i discovered this is artist he's actually a cuban artist but was living in paris at the time who knew and fk did uh remixes on it and this kind of reminds me of that era of the sound of the garage and that kind of thing so let me play this for you
Well, you have to go. Yeah, I gotta know? go. <laughs> I did hang out for a while. I got hit, I got, I got hit a little bit off the time, but you guys were behind time today. I have my own event to go to. Okay, so I, I think <laughs> I think I think we'll end it there. Thanks so much, Ron. This is this is really great. Yeah, um, maybe we could do it again. Yeah, hang out some more, play some jams, talk. Yeah. You know what I mean? But uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I I, I, got, I gotta go. And uh, you know this traffic is crazy, so yeah. I really, you know, I might <laughs> fuck around and have to walk uh, <laughs> some over there. But uh, yeah, we'll do this again. Yeah, it's gonna... thanks so much, everyone. And I gotta play here late on the night anyway. I gotta come yeah. back. God damn. Yeah, yeah. Well, a playing favorites extended version. Lord. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this RA Exchange with Ron Trent. Many thanks to Kiana Mickles for moderating this conversation. The track playing in the outro of the episode is Ron Trent's song, Altered States. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next week, take care.